Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, once again, just like to add my own happy, happy Canada Day. I see a lot of red and white colors out there. I did have a red sweater on, but it's a little warm in here, so I had to remove it. I do have a little red in my bow tie, but there's also a little blue there, I guess, because I'm a monarchist and for Britain or something. Um, it brings me to a point, though, that uh, the, the formal name for our country is the Dominion of Canada, and Dominion is sort of... Uh, signifying that we're part of the Commonwealth of Nations, of course, but also, as the story goes, the, the term was chosen for our nation based on Psalm 72, verse 8. He shall have dominion uh, from, the, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, so there's, there, there is that heritage there, even in the, the formal name of our country. And it was good to sing uh, the other verses of our national anthem uh, as well today and to make that a prayer for our nation. I do apologize, Uh, it doesn't look like, I have a confidence monitor here that's supposed to show me what's on the screen behind me, but it doesn't appear to be on, Um, so I may have to turn around from time to time, we'll see if that works. But we do have a video here, we're continuing our sermon series in the King's Speech, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I've got a little video to start off. I do apologize, the the quality of the video isn't great, but I think it's kind of funny, so I hope that that... uh, I saw Jen crouching down by the pool with her iPhone in her left hand, but I didn't see her iPhone. I came at her from... You saw her crouching down with her iPhone in her left hand, but you didn't see her iPhone. She was holding her iPhone. Okay, she was crouching down by the pool like like this, like this. No. Yeah, you were. Um, And? And I came at her, I pushed her in the pool. She was wearing her bathing suit. I saw her back. Her bathing suit was on. Because when she got out of the pool, I saw her belly button ring, and that's how I remember it. And it wasn't malicious at all. I had no idea she had her iPhone. I felt awful after it happened. Well, you felt awful. That means you pay for it if you feel awful. Well, I mean, it was the atmosphere of the party. We were all pushing each other in. She didn't push anybody in. No. Grow up. You make a mistake. That's what you have to do. Make a mistake. You did something wrong. You negligently ruined her iPhone. You have to pay for that. It's as simple as that. Isn't that rocket science? What is rocket science? Rocket science is when the scientists find out things about space. (laughs) I think. So, so if you've ever seen uh, Judge Judy or any similar uh, small claims court show on TV, you know that this this seems to be pretty much the norm uh, for how these how these things play out, right? These court shows, they're, they're kind of a setup to find the silliest court cases they can find. This is small claims court. They're trying civil lawsuits. These aren't criminal cases. Uh, usually the suit is for $5,000 or less. And usually, as in this clip, the, the claims are silly just to the point of being pathetic and, and, and ridiculous. And if you've ever seen this show, Judge Judy is known for just being really abrasive and kind of mean and not tolerating any foolishness in her courtroom. And she's pretty quick to render a verdict. You know, she listens to it for a few minutes and that, that's enough of this foolishness. She rules in favor of who, usually whoever seems the less stupid of the two people that are before her. Usually neither of them seem terribly bright and that's why they're on a court TV show. Right? And it's usually just silly, trivial stuff, like somebody went halvesies on a computer equipment or something for their apartment, a piece of furniture, and then somebody wanted to move out, and who gets this, and they can't agree, or somebody agreed to pay half, and then they didn't, or just dumb stuff like that. But 
it's nice to see somebody get to the bottom of foolishness and make a clear judgment one way or the other, decide, okay, who's right and who's wrong and what are we going to do about it? And when things are less clear, when it actually is a case that that has some merit and meaning and significance, we like to see that justice is done, that who is in the right is upheld and who is in the wrong is punished. And it's good to see that even in these small things, right, that people don't get away with trashing their apartment and flying by midnight and leaving it that way or defaulting on their loans and so forth. There's something satisfying about that, whether it's Judge Judy cutting people down to size in her courtroom or Simon Cowell on any of the 75 talent shows that he has done, uh, telling people like it is that you have no skills and why are you even here wasting my time. I was going to show some of them, but usually he says words that I probably shouldn't shouldn't put on videos in church, but sometimes it's the truth. Uh, we kind of we enjoy, though, when a spade is called a spade, and, and even if the truth hurts sometimes, right? But then against kind of this seemingly natural desire for right and wrong to be decided between, and Jesus says not to judge others. And what's this all about? Well, I, I don't think I have to tell you that Matthew 7, verse 1 has probably become one of the most popular verses in the New Testament, e- even more popular than good old standbys like John three sixteen, And it's particularly popular with people in our wider culture who like to paint Christians as kind of intolerant bigots uh, and are narrow-minded, and particularly so when they want to uphold some sort of moral standards. Usually it goes something like this, Well, who are you to judge me? Even your Jesus said not to judge. You're not even following your own religion. You don't know my heart. Who are you to tell me? So what's going on here? Uh, Well, I think a lot of misunderstanding, to be honest. And that doesn't mean that we're off the hook either. Let's look at this passage and see what Jesus is actually saying. And as usual, context is our friend. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. I would invite you, as is our custom, to stand for the reading of our sermon text as you are able. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1, and we'll read to verse 12. Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is God's word. You may have a seat. So in this passage today, uh, Jesus has two things, two groups for us, two don'ts 
and two do's. And we're going to look at those in turn. Now, don't judge is, is his first point. And I'd like to begin by stating, Jesus is not saying there are no such things as moral standards and that there aren't any occasions when we should point them out. Neither is Jesus saying that offering correction is evil and oppressive and just a power play. In case you hadn't noticed, he's already spent two chapters of the Sermon on the Mount doing just that, judging, calling right from wrong, and sometimes quite harshly, giving correctives, major ones, and he sets moral standards. If if anything, Jesus has taken these last couple of chapters and taken what people thought should be their moral standards, and he's raised the bar rather than lowering it. Now, it might not be appropriate to say on Canada Day, or maybe it is, but I'm, I'm very weary of the attitude in our nation and our wider culture that says ideas of right and wrong are just kind of socially constructed norms that are bent on oppressing people, the don't-tell-me-what-to-do-with-my-body attitude and as-long-as-no-one-gets-hurt attitude. But here's the thing. Most everything ex- exists on a spectrum. There are legalistic, authoritarian societies And there are tolerant, permissive, even lawless societies. Jesus lived in the former type, at least within his Jewish culture. Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees being kind of the primary representatives of the legalistic, authoritarian society. The rules and the law were very important in his culture. We, however, kind of live in the latter type of society. One that's very tolerant, very permissive, that values just the freedom to do the things that you want to do without being interfered with in any way. So we need to hear Jesus' words carefully here, since the society he was addressing these words to was in many ways quite different from our own culture. In some ways, even opposite. And here's another thing that seems to be universally true. When you're at an extreme end of a spectrum like this, whether you're in a legalistic, authoritarian society or a very permissive, open kind of a society over here, you frequently think that what you really need is more of what you already have. So in Jesus' culture, you have the the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that believe that what they really needed was just more rules surrounding the rules and eventually we will all be able to obey them better and society will function better, we'll get along better, and, and things will be well. In our own culture, we have the opposite problem. We're already very open and tolerant and permissive of all kinds of things and what we hear the cry for is we need more of that. We need don't interfere with things. Don't tell me what to do. Let me live my life. Who are you to say? and all of those kinds of things that we're used to hearing. We kind of just like to double down on our preferences. In both cases, that just makes us go even further toward the extremes rather than maybe taking some sane steps back and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa here. Maybe, maybe what's needed is a bit of a corrective in the other direction, more back towards somewhere in the middle that's a bit more sane. Now, this is kind of big theoretical and philosophical stuff, but it affects how we interpret the scriptures. We, we come to the scriptures, no matter what we do, from the point of our own culture, and we hear them addressed to us through that lens in certain ways. It, we bring assumptions. It affected how people in Jesus' day read their scriptures, the Old Testament, and it affects how we interpret or sometimes misinterpret our scriptures today. Let's look at how Jesus interprets his statement about not judging and see if that context surrounding the verse will actually help us understand it a bit. Because, you know, lots of people, they just like to quote that little bit, judge not that you be not judged, in isolation from the rest of this passage. Jesus goes on to illustrate that with a point that would probably be pretty funny 
if we weren't actually just so over-familiar with it. So he says, why do you notice the speck of sawdust that's in your brother's eye, but you're not aware that there's a plank in your own eye? Now, I'm sure that Jesus drew this illustration from his, his work life, right? He was a builder, after all, and probably had occasion to get sawdust in his eye from time to time and knew that that wasn't a very pleasant thing. The point he's making here, eyes are sensitive, right? If you get something in your eye, a bit of dirt, soap, some dust, even an eyelash, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of getting a a bit of metal stuck in your eye, it's very painful. You notice when something is in your eye, even if something that's quite small. Jesus' point here is, is that you can be so blind to your own sin, it's like, it's like having a big piece of wood jammed in your eye and not notice it. But even so, you notice that somebody else has a tiny speck of dust in their own eye and you feel the need to correct them, right? We're so prone to excusing and minimalizing and rationalizing our own sins as, well, that's just the way I am, even when they are significant and obvious sins. And yet, We can be so blind to that that it's like we've got a plank in our eye and yet we turn around and just rip into somebody else for what is by comparison a pretty trivial matter. Sometimes we don't rip into them to their face. We we do it behind their backs. We say bad things about them on social media or, or other online communication. I'm sure we've all done it in one form or another. Sometimes we we do it in the sense of, well, we really should be praying for so and so. Right? We've all done it. We've all, had, we've all had plank eye syndrome at one point or another. We've been walking around with what amounts to a big old board stuck in our eye. And we're, we're totally blind to it. The other thing we tend to do is we tend to pick out certain sins as being particularly grievous ones. Usually those are the ones we're actually not in much danger of committing ourselves and we ignore other sins as not really so bad, usually the ones that we ourselves commit with some frequency. So we'll rail against anything that maybe has to do with you know, homosexuality and, and the gay pride movement that we've all seen recently. We'll rail against that and then turn a blind eye to greediness or gossip, even though all of these things are condemned with very strong words throughout the New Testament. And of course, it's sometimes worse than that. We can all think of Christian leaders, famous ones, influential ones, or even just people we know personally, who frequently criticized and condemned certain sins and certain lifestyles in strong terms, often sexual ones as well. All the while, unbeknownst to many, these people were committing some of those same sins in secret, even sometimes in shocking ways. And eventually, the truth came out, and their words and their lifestyle were shown not to line up. They had a great big plank in their own eye. So what's the solution here? Well, I think there there are two options. The first option is just don't judge ever. And this is supposedly the option that's pursued by our wider culture. The name of the game today is tolerance, acceptance, everyone pursuing what is right for them. And we dare not interfere with that by inserting tried-and-true codes of morality or even just the basic facts of the universe into the situation because that might hurt someone's feelings. And so we're told, don't judge, and we're reminded that Jesus was the one who said that. Except this isn't the course of action that Jesus actually pursued because if you study the Sermon on the Mount, as we have been, 
you'll find Jesus being what sounds shockingly sometimes judgmental. He calls people out for being hypocrites. In just a few verses, he's going to have strong words about false teachers, and he's going to tell us you can easily tell who these false teachers are. In other words, judge the true ones from the false ones by the fruits of their lives. Over in Matthew 22, uh, we don't have to turn there, but you can read it at some point. That's where he, he really rips into the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law for the, the kind of hypocrisy that, and the lives they're leading. He calls them snakes and sons of hell and all kinds of things that, that sound kind of shocking coming from Jesus. So Jesus is not telling us that it's wrong to make or hold value judgments when lines have clearly been crossed. He did it himself. Judge not is not a statement that there are no such things as moral standards or criteria of right and wrong. An honest look for five minutes at Jesus and his teachings to say nothing of the rest of the New Testament should make that abundantly clear. So what's he getting at? Well, there's a second option. And I would say, judge when absolutely necessary, do so only humbly, and with a view to actually helping people. Here's the thing. Either your brother has a speck of sawdust in his eye or he doesn't. Now, there may be an issue with you having a plank in your own, but if he's got a speck of sawdust in his eye, he's got a speck of sawdust in his eye, and nobody likes that. Much seems to have been made recently of my my tool shed project. Pastor Blaine has brought that up on a few occasions. Um, You don't do any kind of carpentry or woodworking project without getting some sawdust in your eye. And I had the misfortune of taking a shower after working outside on my shed project and washing my face and getting quite, a, I think, a decent-sized chunk uh, washed off of my face and right into my eye, into my lower eyelid. And it really, I got it out, but by the time it got out, it had really scratched my eyeball and it really hurt for 24 hours or so. Uh, having something in your eye is unpleasant. It makes it hard to see It's irritating, and if you aren't able to wash it out, it can lodge in there and you can get an eye infection or it can can permanently damage your eye, especially in the case of something metal or ceramic getting in there. This is the whole point of verse 5. The end goal is not just to throw our hands in the air and say, well, well, who am I to say? Or, well, your speck is just insignificant compared to my plank. The goal is, as Jesus said, get the plank out of your own eye first, then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother get the little speck out of his eye. You can help him with what's troubling him. Now notice the flow of Jesus' illustration here with specks and planks. We begin by just noticing that your brother has a speck in his eye or maybe pointing it out that this is the case. And that's what we often do with the sin of others. We notice it and we point it out And sometimes we point it out not with a view to help, but in order to humiliate or in order to make ourselves look better by comparison or to call for punishment. But that's easy. It's much harder to do the work of dealing with our own sins and the particular ways we're tempted towards certain sins in order to become the sort of person who can help someone else deal with theirs. Now, some of you might be familiar with Jordan Peterson. He's a bit of a controversial figure in our nation today, but sometimes he has some some interesting things to say. 
in his book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, he has a chapter about this very thing, about setting your own house in order before you criticize the world. Now, regardless of what you think of him or or his views on things, he says here, don't blame capitalism, the radical left, or the iniquity of your enemies. Don't reorganize the state until you have ordered your own experience. Have some humility. If you cannot bring peace to your household, how dare you try to rule a city? Right? Have some humility, begin at home, deal with your own issues first, and once you get some of those things under control, maybe you've gained some wisdom and some self-control and actually be able to help others. Have some humility. Jesus says the same. We'll talk a bit about some specific application at the end, but let's move on towards the, the next part of our text. Pearls and pigs. So Jesus follows this sort of long-ish little parable about having a plank in your eye with sort of a short, tiny little one that's also pretty memorable. Don't give holy things to dogs and don't cast your pearls before pigs. Again, this is ridiculous. In Jesus' culture and in many developing countries around the world, dogs are not viewed as pets. Dogs are viewed as filthy scavengers. Interestingly enough, as Dushel and I were pursuing our adoption application, one of the things we had to do was uh, to send pictures of ourselves, uh, particularly ourselves in and around our home. And one of the things we were cautioned about was if we had a dog, try not to include pictures of a dog in your application to adopt from a foreign country. Because people in, in... different cultures around the world in developing countries, they're, they're really kind of weirded out by the fact that North Americans would have dogs living in their homes with them. That's, that's really weird to them. They don't think of dogs as pets. They think of them kind of as, as nuisances. And uh, often children from foreign countries are very afraid of dogs. We, at one point, not that long ago, had uh, some kids from an African children's choir that was visiting here as well. And that was another thing to they cautioned us about is do you have a dog you better keep the dog under control maybe maybe consider having someone else keep your dog well we don't have a dog but we did go for a walk with some of the kids and they were very afraid of dogs just on the street even if they were just tied up on their leash in the front yard if they barked they were very afraid of them all that to say uh, dogs and pigs are, are unclean dirty kind of animals in in many cultures still and certainly in Jesus' own Jewish culture. So what's he getting at? In the previous section, he warned us against being judgmental without reason. I think in this section, he's telling us not to be willfully blind, right? To be judgmental is to be willfully blind, I should say, to our own problems and our own issues. But to avoid ever making any judgment calls is to be willfully blind to the issues and problems of others. In other words, I think we have kind of a flip side of the truth we discussed earlier. I think we noticed a few times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been here for this series, Jesus tends to teach in a way that's kind of rooted deeply in the Jewish wisdom literature tradition. It's true here, right? There are many parables in, in the Proverbs about not attempting to correct fools and scoffers. One of the most relevant and memorable in this regard is Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, which says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like them. And then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. 
Giving holy things to dogs or or pearls to pigs is another way of putting the first point in this pair of Proverbs. Don't give holy or precious things to dogs or pigs. The dogs will do what comes naturally to them. They'll chew them to pieces. The pigs will do what comes naturally to them, trample them in the mud. And as harsh as it sounds, some people will do the exact same thing if you're trying to share truth with them. You just can't force it on them. You can't force them to accept it. The way that they think about it, the mindset and the worldview and the attitude that they have simply will not allow them to accept it. Whether it's the truth of the gospel, whether it's help sincerely offered, whether it's good advice for life. And I'm sure we can all think of situations where we've honestly and sincerely tried to help someone and it didn't go well. We just got taken advantage of. And maybe we pursued that for some time before we realized what was happening, that maybe we were just enabling a dysfunctional lifestyle. Or perhaps you knew somebody who would come to you frequently for advice. They had problems. And some of their problems weren't actually that big of issues. You could see what it was and you would say, well, if you just did this and this, you could, you could start getting, getting your debt under control or whatever the issue might be. And they'd, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a great thing. Okay. And then they would just go out and not do any of it. And they'd come back to you and you would try to tell them the same thing. Or maybe it involves sharing the gospel or, sadly, trying to reconcile with someone who is simply hard-hearted and unresponsive. No one is ever beyond God's help. But there comes a point when trying to force truth, even the truth of the gospel, on someone, we're just wasting our time. Sometimes it can even make them hard-hearted more so toward it, where we're just casting our pearls before pigs. And it sounds harsh, but Jesus is saying it's probably best just to move on. If we keep on trying to force things, at best we're wasting our time. At worst, we might actually develop some kind of a dependency cycle or develop a Messiah complex in ourselves. We'll come back around to this at the end too, but I think Jesus' use of brother in the first section about having a plank or a speck in your eye is significant and probably applies here too. If the person in question is genuinely your Christian brother or sister, right? If they are saved, if they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, there is a hope that your, your correction, your help might actually get somewhere with them. But if they're not, if the person hasn't experienced the transformation that comes through faith in Jesus, it may not work so well. You may not get anywhere. Why would it, right? Why should we expect that someone who doesn't know the Lord should want to live like somebody who does? Why should we expect that they would want to live as Christians when they are not? In verses 7 through 11, we have kind of a section that seems disconnected from the previous ones. We might be tempted to view it as such, but then in verse 12, Jesus circles back around to the way that you treat other people. And so I think we need to see verses 7 through 11 somehow as as related to all of this, even if they seem to take a bit of a weird 90-degree turn. How is that, though? These verses teach us about the character of God. They teach us that he is fundamentally generous. We all know that there are legitimately terrible people out there who who abuse children and get what seems like a sick and demented delight out of doing so. But for the most part, even average, sinful, non-believing people try to do right by, by children as best they can, imperfectly though it may be. Only a sick and twisted individual would give a child who asked for a bun a, a rock instead. 
probably pretty familiar with the tactics used by small children to get what they want, right? And any moms and dads or even grandmas and grandpas experienced the gradual wearing down tactic when the children were small? Anyone remember when a child wanted a puppy, for instance, right? And, and, and some of you probably went from we are never having a dog in this home to spending a small fortune on its toys and its food and boarding the dog while you go away on a holiday and its medical treatment when it's sick. The constant stream of, but it would be so nice to have a puppy to sleep at the foot of my bed and I'll feed it and water it and take it for walks and I'll save my allowance to buy it, eventually wore you down. And you gave in and gave, gave your kids what they wanted. How about any of you moms and dads ever experienced the divide and conquer tactic, right? I'm sure, and some of us who are a little younger, maybe we remember doing so as kids, right? You knew that mom and dad were, you know, they tried to do the best they could to present a united front in their parenting strategy, but there were some things that dad would let you away with that mom never would, or, or vice versa, right? And you'd know which parent to go to to request a certain thing. Or sometimes you'd play one off against the other, right? Well, well, dad said I could, or mom said I could, and really they hadn't, but another way to, to get what kids want. They're very good at it. However, despite the need to be convinced about puppies and sleepovers and expensive Lego sets, most parents have no problem fulfilling a kid's basic requests for the necessary things. Most parents are quite willing even to make sacrifices for those extra things that children wish for. If anything, our culture is probably getting a bit too good at this, at least as evidenced by the massive credit card debt Canadians seem to be able to rack up over the Christmas season uh, buying their kids expensive presents. But the point still stands. We are generous. As people, generally speaking, we're generous to a fault when it comes to our kids. And using a line of reasoning he frequently employs, Jesus argues that if such is the case for sinful humans, unregenerate people, if this is how they act toward kids, imagine how our perfect heavenly Father wants to bless us. The the joy and willingness and eagerness and delight in giving us good things. Certainly without spoiling or indulging the way sometimes we do, but generosity all the same. And we can all think of those good things that God has given to us I hope the primary one for which we're thankful is the forgiveness of our sins. Because just in case we had forgotten, that is our biggest need. It cost God literally everything to make that possible. And yet, he gave generously and he gave freely. And friends, we dare not forget that. The gospel of the forgiveness of our sins and adoption into God's family isn't something we can just kind of leave behind as a formality, as an entrance requirement into the life of faith and into his kingdom. It's the very foundation of our lives of faith at the beginning as we continue on in faith day by day while we live on this earth and into eternity. Here's the thing. The Lord had every right to judge us, write us off, and walk away from us because of our sins and our fallenness and our rebellion outright against him. And yet in his infinite generosity, he did not do so. And neither did he try to just ignore our sins or pretend that, how they weren't so bad. Instead, he chose to bear them himself in the person of Jesus Christ and offer us his very own righteousness in return for our sins. That's generous, 
That's generosity that ought to boggle our minds if we think about it. As we've seen in the previous section of this sermon, Jesus isn't just blowing smoke when he calls us to live the kingdom life. It's the life he lived. He lived it fully and completely. And he's not calling us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. So do you see the connection here? If that's how generous God is with us, how can we possibly justify being judgmental and unforgiving toward others, especially our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? In verse 12, we have one of Jesus' most famous sayings, which is often, as I'm sure you know, called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. At least that's how it's frequently been, been kind of condensed. And this is another one that's a favorite of people outside of the the Christian faith. And it's usually read in isolation in kind of that shortened down form. And it's usually understood to mean live and let live, right? Just let me do whatever I want without comment, unless it's to affirm. And it's usually pointed out, well, it wasn't just Jesus. Many other moral philosophers said much the same over the years. And it's true that this saying isn't exactly unique to Jesus, However, it does bear some examination. Other moral philosophers, such as Confucius, for instance, tended to state it in the negative more so. Don't do things to others that you wouldn't want done to you. So that's similar, but it's not exactly the same. Stating it in the negative is somewhat easier to obey. You just don't actively do any harm and you've done it. But stating the positive is a bit more challenging. It requires you to actually actively seek the good of others. And we can't just read it in isolation, and we'd probably do better if instead of just having in our minds that kind of condensed version, do unto others, to actually have what it says in here. It's, it's a little bit more full as Jesus actually said it. It's not there in every translation, but Jesus connects the golden rule to what has come before. Uh, the ESV has so, and some translations have therefore. And I know we, you know, Since we graduated from high school or college, we kind of forgot about English things like prepositions and all that kind of stuff. But these little conjunction-type words like so or therefore or because of, they're actually really important because they connect one idea to the next. These types of little words, they can be essential in understanding how one thing connects to another when we read Scripture. Jesus isn't just making an isolated or abstract statement. He's saying something like this. Given that God is supremely generous to you, even though you don't deserve it, do good to others, even if they don't deserve it. Given that God could have rightfully judged and condemned you, even though you deserved it, be very cautious about judging and condemning others, even when they deserve it. Another thing is that this is one of those passages where uh, a word-for-word translation from the Greek is a bit challenging. But in any case, the stereotypical do unto others as you would have them do unto you is, is kind of weak. And, and it's actually not what you find in most translations of the Bible. It's something more like, therefore, everything, whatsoever you wish that others would do for you, do for them. There's a real, real inclusiveness in this verse. It's more than just a philosophy like our culture likes of just, well, live and let live. There's a sense of overflowing generosity to others that's in this verse. It's, it goes well above and beyond just generally be polite. 
This is so much more than just, well, don't be a jerk or leave people alone to let them do whatever they want. It's about figuring out not necessarily what people want, but what is best for them and doing that for them. So now what do we do? Well, I hope not just, well, we'll go and carry on with life without changing anything. Because the scriptures call us to change. They call us to grow. They call us to become more like our Savior. Jesus' statement, do not judge lest you be judged, does not mean that there are no moral standards or that moral judgments are impossible. It's pretty clear even just from one chapter of Matthew, that, let alone the rest of the book or the New Testament, the Bible teaches that there are such things as standards. Another one that I hear frequently, and I'm sure you do as well, well, don't judge. You don't know his heart. That's also false. Jesus says in just a few verses, by their fruits you will know them. And elsewhere, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now we don't always know what's going on in someone's heart and in their inmost being and in their soul. But Jesus teaches that in general, you'll know what's going on in there by the way people speak and the way they act. Those things indicate our character. However, And this is a big however, and probably the part that we need to hear as followers of Jesus. We should be very careful about how we enact such standards. It seems to me this is where we need to spend the majority of our time. So let's think of some some possibilities about what to do when you feel that urge to speak up. Remember, you might be right, but there's a time and a place and a way, and you don't always need to say so. So first of all, check yourself. Check your pride, check your motives, humble yourself, and decide whether you really have a leg to stand on in criticizing someone else. Are you applying one standard to yourself and a different standard to another, right? Are you holding other people to a way stricter and harsher standard than you would be willing to hold yourself to? Are you criticizing someone in an area where you certainly wouldn't want your inmost thoughts and your secret actions to be made known to the world? If so, maybe you need to say nothing, at least for now. Be quick to judge yourself and be slow to judge others. So check yourself. Check your life. Check your motives. Why do you feel the need to point out someone else's faults at this point? Is it because your pride has been hurt? Is it because you were annoyed or inconvenienced in some way? Are you pointing it out more for your own sake to to vindicate yourself rather than for the other person's sake? To avoid that person hurting themselves further? To avoid them going down a path of destruction? What do you hope to achieve by pointing out someone else's faults, either as an individual or even as a group? Honestly. Are you hoping to help this person grow in their faith? Are you hoping to reconcile with them? Are you pointing it out because you genuinely want to help this person not to make these sorts of mistakes again in the future? Or is your desire just to prove your own point and be superior, to humiliate the person, or just to call for some kind of measure of judgment? Are you pointing out the speck in your brother's eye because you want to help him get it out, or just because you feel like you need to make a point? Because if it's the latter, it may be best just to say nothing, right? At least for now. Be quick to give grace and be slow to condemn. Check the context. 
this is kind of a hard one to, to sum up in one little statement, but basically, right, don't expect that non-Christians will have this inner sense that they need to act like Christians. If they don't have the Holy Spirit living and active in their hearts and in their lives, why would they? Especially in the culture we live in today. Don't expect that non-Christians will feel the need to act like Christians. Don't expect that arguing with them and, and pointing out proof texts is going to just make them go, aha, I see now and I want to become a Christian. Especially don't think that arguing with them on the internet in that way is going to convince them to convert to Christianity and win them to Jesus. And don't expect that arguing on the internet, even to prove a point, even when you're right, even when you have the support of Scripture, it's probably not going to do much to make Christians and the church and Jesus look very good. Right? Don't argue with fools or trolls on the internet lest you be like them, to paraphrase King Solomon. Right? Probably arguing with people, even if you're right, isn't going to help them. It's not going to bring them further toward Jesus. Just because you, you are correct doesn't mean that you're going to accomplish anything by just trying to force that on someone else. It can be hard to accept, especially when you, you believe and know and you have the scriptural proof that you're right, but sometimes it just does more harm than good. Don't, don't throw your pearls before the pigs. Resist the urge to be right, but really obnoxious. Some people just aren't interested, right? Pray for them, but don't waste your time arguing with them. Here are a couple more, just for free. Go to the person, not the grapevine. Matthew 18 is pretty specific about this, right? Go and bring the issue up with the person you have the issue with. Now, there may be some times when you need some wise counsel and some perspective about how you should do that. You may need to go to someone you trust to talk about it with over first. But go to somebody that you can trust will keep the matter confidential and give you good counsel and give you their opinion on how to proceed. But it should always be with a matter of discussing it with the actual person you have the conflict with. Don't gossip. Don't triangulate. Don't try to do end runs around the situation. Go to your brother and deal with it with him. And just have some compassion. I don't think that this needs too much explaining, or at least it shouldn't. The real question we need to ask as, as we seek to apply this verse and what I think would be just the most helpful guiding principle is what kind of a community is it that we're trying to build in our midst? What kind of community is the church? What kind of community is our church? Would people outside of the church or outside of our church see anything different about the way we treat each other? I hope they would and I believe they would. And yet, as we look around, I'm sure I see and you see more of the world in our midst as well, as far as how we treat one another and the level of compassion that we have toward one another. Jesus said that the watching world would know that we're his disciples if we genuinely loved one another. And that's, I think, at the end of the day, what these passages are all about. And that should be the guiding principle of how we apply them. If we can say, yes, I'm acting in a way that's loving, I'm acting in a way that has a view toward helping and making the situation better, that will be a pretty helpful criteria in how we apply this passage. Because the way we treat one another should mirror the kind of grace and generosity and compassion 
with which God has already treated us. That's the gospel, and that's the gospel in action. And, and today, we have a chance to actually participate in that, right? As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of his grace toward us and his generosity toward us in Jesus Christ. And yet the communion table is not something that we do as isolated individuals. It's something that we do when we gather together as the body of Christ and as the family of faith. And it's, it's not necessarily the case that, that we're sharing a meal together every time, although there is something very profound that this is symbolized by, by a very simple meal, that there's fellowship involved. And I hope that today this can be a very tangible and visible reminder of the grace of God toward us and that grace extended toward one another in, in the body as represented here. So I would invite our, our communion servers to come forward and